Enjoy this recording taken from an unscripted live audio conversation on Mensa. That's M-E-N-T-Z-A. We are delighted to introduce the post-Soviet literary imagination. Every great literature is rooted in geography, in music, in the intangibles of identity. Cultural and socio-political changes triggered by the collapse of the Soviet Union led to a new and evolving literary sensibility. Academic and National Film Award-winning film critique Rashmi Doraswamy examines the literary landscapes in Russia, Ukraine, Central Asia, Belarus in Soviet and post-Soviet times. We welcome Navtej Sharna. Navtej Sharna is the author of several novels like The Exile and We Weren't Lovers Like That and several translations, Zafarnama and Savage Harvest. Sana was India's ambassador to the United States till 2018 and also served as India's high commissioner to the UK and ambassador to Israel. I would request sir to please begin. I need silence. I can't. We request the audience to please maintain discipline. It's not the audience. Good afternoon. Uh, we'll just begin as long as we we are getting a lot of echo from the conversations. And this is a very, very rich session. I don't want our guests' uh, uh, speech to get lost in that noise. Could we please have silence at the corner? Thank you. Uh, This is an easy job for me. I'm just being asked to introduce the session and the speaker, which is a pleasure. Professor Rashmi Doraishwami, uh, an expert on Russian literature, language, and now a professor of international studies of Eurasia and Russia at Jamia Milia. But we are going to try to bring her back to her first love, which is literature and language. And actually, this setting is perfect for a talk on Russian literature. It's a basement. It's people who are really interested who are here. And gives me the feeling of, you know, much of Russian writing has been in the underground. And this is it. So I'll just start off with a couple of little stories and then I'll leave it to Rashmi. Forty years ago, I was in Moscow and I made some attempts to get, you know, it was still pre-Perestroika. It was still closed Soviet society. I tried one day to go to Tolstoy's estate. Yasna Polyana. Yasna Polyana. And then just when I was about to reach there, I was stopped. And there was this Soviet guard, steely jawed, blue eyes, the works, who said, you can't go, Niet. I said, you know, I love Tolstoy, I need to go. 
I tried all the Raj Kapoor stuff. I tried everything. Nothing worked. He was so busy, he was stopping me and when he was not stopping me, he was boiling some eggs. So this forty-year-old memory is crystal clear of this man in uniform boiling hard-boiled eggs and keeping me away from Tolstoy. Uh, I had to turn back. Sometime later, I tried another trick, another trip and a trick. I went to a village called Peridelkino. Peridelkino is outside Moscow, maybe thirty, forty miles, I forget. It's a writer's village, where all the writers in Soviet times, who were broadly accepted, were given places to stay. I was chasing Boris Pasternak the author of Dr. Zhivago. I wanted… I was told he was buried there. So I wanted to go and see his grave. And we struggled around, I couldn't find the grave. Then there were two babushkas standing there, grandmothers of Russian vintage in their overcoats and scarves and hats. And I asked them, where is Zhivago's grave? So they said, look for the three pines. So, I looked for the three pines and when I found the three pines, under that I found Boris, not Zhivago's, but you know this, your mind conflates Zhivago and Pasternak, to the Boris Pasternak's grave. And it was Easter, it was Easter and there were a lot of hard-boiled eggs on the grave as a gift to Pasternak. So, there's something in my mind about Russian literature and hard-boiled eggs. I don't know what it is, but there is a connection. So, you know, a for a lot of us, Russian literature has been Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Turgenev, Chekhov, and rightly so. I mean, I think the greatest benefit that Tolstoy and Dostoevsky have given me is that I'm never at a loss to say which book you're going to read this year. It's always War and Peace or it's brother's karamzov, because you can be safe, you'll never finish it. You can keep… you can keep saying at the beginning of any year, I'm going to read it, you know, and God bless your good intentions. But… but there have been others which followed and there have been periods of Soviet writing, you know, some emigre outside, some there, some accepted, some sent to Siberia, Mandelstorm. Osip Mandelstrom, who just recited in a group like this, that's why I said this is the right setting, a poem which he had written against Stalin, just a group of small friends. And before he knew it, off he went. And he never really recovered from that, never returned. Pasternak made his compromises, he managed to get Zhivago published outside, could never accept the Nobel Prize but he wasn't killed or hanged or shot. And there were others, there was Anna Akhmatova who lived a tremendously exciting life. Uh, she wrote this huge poem, was it the Requiem? Which she destroyed and which she memorized, recited to her friends, made sure they memorized and then destroyed it. So that there was no evidence left of anything. So all this went on. But was it just white Russia as we call it? 
Was it just Moscow and uh, Leningrad those days which was doing it? Or were the republics around today who which are all separate states involved? Were there the settings only or were they contributing their own little streams of literature? And what happened in 91 when the Soviet Union just dissolved, 15 countries result? What happened to the great literature? Did it stop going across the borders or did those people stop talking of Moscow in their literature or the Russian traditions? Did the national borders stop this? So on and so forth. These are all questions which I have no answers to and for which we've got Rashmi here for the next twenty odd minutes. We'll try to keep some time for questions, so it's over to you. Thank you, Navdevji, for that wonderful introduction. And uh, you actually made my job very easy because you, act, you culled out what is important from the Soviet period and I can just continue from there. And of course, I'm very grateful to Namitaji and JLF for inviting me for this uh, lecture. So um, when Soviet Union imploded in 1991, there was a triple transition for the independent republics that Navdeji just spoke about. Uh, the first, of course, was the transition from socialist to market economy. Then there was de-Sovietization and then there was de-Russification. And this had its impact on the cultural field as well. So uh, the first, of course, was that socialist realism as a canon, which writers willy-nilly were supposed to follow no longer was had its preeminent position. The second was, of course, the taking away of all censorship. And this, in fact, these processes, ha processes had started during Perestroika, but after the fall, of course, uh, these were the main things that happened. The third was that the entire literary field came together. Earlier in the Soviet uh, period, uh, the dissident literature the literature that was called Sam Izdat, that is self-published literature because the official publishers didn't publish you. You published it, it went underground and it was circulated underground like this as Navteji just mentioned. Uh, that Sam Izdat literature uh, had many great names. Um, so the emigre literature, the dissident literature, some is that, as well as the official literature, which also included the critical insider. So it was not that all those who were officially published uh, did not innovate with form or did, uh, did not criticize the ills of uh, Soviet uh, social life and political life. They did, but they remained within the framework of uh, socialist realism while incorporating modernist elements and so on. So uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the national languages, because of de-Russification, became important. But paradoxically, it was the Russian linguistic sphere that still attracted writers, because that was where your audience was. We must remember that during the Soviet period, the kind of scale of printing, the print runs of hundreds of thousands, and the uh, great translation industry that existed, all of that also came to a knot. And uh, writers were left with shrunken readerships. 
So uh, after the fall, uh, the main themes that really emerged in the 90s, among there were many, but two stand out. One is that of apocalypse, and the other one is of dystopia. And of course, many styles come into prominence. Apart from realism, there is post-realism, post-modernism, and all the other isms that uh, were uh, existent at that time anywhere else in the world. So uh, if I were to just pick uh, one work, uh, which is simple to understand, uh, it, it is uh, Makanin, Vladimir Makanin's Escape Hatch. This is a work, it's a novella which overturns the expressionist aesthetic of the underground, this basement that Navdeji just referred to, uh, the underground being the dark, noirish, gloomy, dark place, and the above ground as the place of light. So the above ground is for the rich in a sense, and the underground for the subalterns. Uh, I think Fritz Lang's Metropolis is uh, the epitome of such uh, aesthetic vision. So what Makanin does is really to overturn this aesthetic vision and he makes the underground the space of light where people sit at leisure drinking coffee and talking philosophy and the above ground is where the masses have turned into mobs, it's dark, they are in chaos running all over the place trampling each other. So the hero is a person who can not everyone can uh, tra traverse both these worlds. And the hero is one person who knows how to go through this escape hatch, which is just an opening in the ground, which contracts and can kill you if you get caught in it in the wrong moment. And he keeps traversing both these worlds. So this is just uh, one example of the kind of uh, literature. It's a very small one. And it does no justice to the uh, wonderful works that were published in the 90s. But this is just an example. The other uh, issue of the borderlands that uh, Ambassador Sarna just raised, uh, that is uh, of great importance when we think of what happens to the literature in Russian. We can't really call it Russian literature because it's, or not all of it is produced in Russia. It is produced in the borderlands. And within Russia itself, there is the borderland of um, Tatarstan, for instance. Here, uh, there was a very um, famous work written by a woman writer called Guzel Yakina. Her novel, uh, which she wrote in 2015, much awarded, much fated. Uh, the novelist called Zuleika opens her eyes. And Zuleika is a woman whose only job in life is to satisfy her mother-in-law and get beaten up by her husband. She lives in a small uh, town of Yulbash in Tatarstan near Kazan. And uh, it, this is the time of collectivization and dekulakization. This is 1920s, 1930s um, Russia, Soviet Union. And Guzel Yakina says that this novel was based on her grandmother's experiences. So uh, her husband, who's a very rich kulak, a rich peasant, uh, is killed in an altercation with a Red Army officer, and she is sent off on exile. So there are about 300 
exiles who are being sent out for dekulakization and they travel there so it's like a road uh, novel in a sense because there's this long journey from Tatarstan into the de depths of Siberia and Guzal Yakina in this particular book is traversing several genres because it's firstly women's literature, secondly it's to do with history, rereadings of history becomes very important in the post-Soviet period and it is also about camp prose, Lagirnaya Proza, uh, the best example of which was of course Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Now, this novel is very different and probably the reason why it got so much attention because it is not dealing with the camp as routine system, as a prison system that already exists where there is a very rigid routine which you can't break, which is what is, for example, depicted in um, Solzhenitsyn's book. This is a group of people, there are 300 who leave, only 30 make it to the interiors of the tiger. And here they are like Robinson Crusoe's because what they have to do is to actually hunt and build everything from scratch. There's absolutely nothing in this wilderness. And this Red Army officer who is in charge, he actually believes that uh, he's doing the right thing and these people really need to uh, be dekulakized. But as time passes, and it's, so it's a journey, not just a journey across the steps into the wilderness, but it's also a journey of development of one's views on life. And Guzil Yakina uh, shows how Zuleka, for instance, uh, finds her voice. She becomes a very strong woman. In fact, Ignatov, the Red Army officer who was in charge, believes that she will die on the way. But she miraculously actually survives. And the actress, uh, Cholpan, she's a very famous actress uh, called Cholpan Kamatova, who played uh, Zuleka in the TV serial that was made and was extremely popular. She says that in the first several episodes, she had no dialogues because Zuleika is just quiet. She just puts up with all the abuse that is uh, hurled at her. But this woman who has buried four young daughters is expecting when she sets out on exile and she gives birth to a boy. And it is her uh, you know, maternal instinct, the need to protect her child that really transforms her. As does you know, uh, the, the Red Army officer, he too undergoes a transformation. And when after the Second World War, the boy grows up and wants to go out into the world to study, uh, it is, and, and Ignatov, the Red Army officer, realizes that she, um, he cannot go out with the name of uh, being a son of the Kulak, so he gives him his own name. Now, since we are discussing identity and um, home and, uh, you know, the landscape and other things of that sort in this lecture, this whole discussion on the novel is very important because there were a lot of people who criticized Guzel Yakina and said, well, so you're admitting that a Russian name was required for the boy to go out into the world from the camp and exist. But I think that's rather a fair, uh, criti unfair criticism because um, these people who are actually having hot water as meals for several months. They don't know where they are going. They don't know where they're being sent. 
these are people who survive against all odds and when you survive like this what is the meaning of nationality what is the meaning of religion what is the meaning of a class so these are declassed denationalized dereligionized uh, i'm just making up a word uh, people who have to exist they just have to survive the best they can so a very very touching uh, story by it's a novel by guzel uh, yakina if we look at uh, the peripheries and this in fact as i mentioned is something that starts under garbachev and perestroika in the 80s itself the three p's of perestroika you know this was a term that was used for three novels that began with the letter p uh, during the 80s one was chingiz at matav's blocka which means executioner's block the other was pajar which means fire by valentin rasputin and the third was pichalni detective sad detective by astafiev viktor astafiev two of these astafiev and rasputin were from siberia and chingiz at matav was from central asia from kyrgyzstan and the themes that they take up at this time and the perestroika are extremely interesting because they cover almost all the social ills of the soviet period so these this is a criticality that existed within the soviet system it's not that there was absolutely no freedom no democracy and people couldn't raise their voices um there is the issue of drug addiction there is the issue of environmental degradation there is the issue of bureaucratism of corruption in all forms and in fact uh, rasputin whom solzhenitsyn called an a, a moralist a nravstvenniki he was a practitioner of what was called village prose going back to the village going back to the soil going back to the community so this was a big movement of village prose that existed uh, prior to the fall of the soviet union if we come to central asia uh and we take up the works of chingiz atmatov who's from uh kyrgyzstan as i mentioned just now chingiz atmatov's publications were uh, a, a a huge event cultural event every time a novel of his came out um and he wrote this very wonderful novel in uh, the 80s called a day lasts longer than a century it's an extremely complex novel dealing with many issues of soviet life but i will take up just two themes uh, to give you an indication of uh, just how interesting the work um, from the borderlands also was one of it was a phenomenon that was discussed widely during uh, the 80s in the soviet union uh, that of mankurtism what is a mankurt a mankurt was a, a tribal prisoner so uh, atmatov is going into legends and myths and um, this is about some kind of prehistoric tribal warfare where uh, the prisoners uh, are captured and their heads shaven off and made to wear a very tight skull cap of animal hide so when the hair starts growing it can't grow outwards it doesn't come out in the normal way so it starts growing inwards into the brain and it eats up memory so the question or the theme of historical memory historical amnesia what do you remember what do you forget uh, all this comes up under the theme of mankurtism as it was then called 
The second theme that Aitmatav takes up in this novel is a science fiction one. And so you can imagine how complex the work is from legends right up to science fiction. And socialist science fiction, whether of Eastern Europe or of um, uh, Soviet Union uh, and post-Soviet space is extremely interesting because it's not concerned uh, as the Western science fiction often is with colonization of space, with getting the better of aliens and with technological advancements and gadgets and so on. Um, it is more about humanity, the ability of humans to comprehend all that goes on in the co cosmos, can the human mind actually understand all that and so on and so so forth. So uh, in this particular novel, The Day Lasts Longer Than a Century, Aitmatav takes up a very interesting theme. Uh, this is the time of the Cold War and uh, two astronauts from the US and USSR have been sent into space. And in space, they actually encounter aliens. So they tell their respective governments. But these governments, caught up as they are in the Cold War and Star Wars and so on and so forth, uh, wonder, well, if these aliens come, whom are they going to meet? Are they going to meet the socialists or the capitalists? So all that, they do what humans do best, which is they put up a defense, um, you know, satellites and missiles all around planet Earth. But these two cosmonauts who are already up there in the cosmos, they realize that well, you may be US and I may be USSR, but the point is that this is really a big step for mankind and humankind that you're meeting aliens who are well disposed towards you. They're going to come and, you know, accept you and mingle with you. So they give up the planet, that is, you give up your home, and they go off with the aliens. So this is a very interesting take on how two uh, cosmonauts actually give up their land. So uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Chinggis Aitmatov, who had been writing not just about Kyrgyzstan, but about Russia, Kazakhstan, the Far East, Siberia, thought as, and he becomes ambassador to, of Kyrgyzstan in the Benelux countries, and he thought he could now do world literature, you know, go on expanding as he had been expanding his thematic repertoire during the Soviet Union. So he writes, uh, again, I can't go into details about the novel. The novel is called Mark of Cassandra, 1995. But here, once again, you have a scientist who's doing completely unethical experimentations. Then he goes up into cosmos, into those, into space. And when he's there, uh, Soviet Union collapses. So he doesn't have a home to return to, and he refuses to come back to Earth. So he rejects Earth as, as a home, and because the Soviet Union no longer exists. Exists. And finally, he commits suicide in space. He just steps out of uh, the space station and he becomes an eternal mummy because obviously the body won't decompose over there and he's going to be flying there as a mummy. So very interesting images coming from the borderlands and high science fiction. Uh, the other very interesting story is from a novel, is from uh, Tajikistan. And this again is a much awarded novel called Kuramabad by Andrei Bolas. Tajikistan was the only country after the fall of the Soviet Union where there was a civil war. And the civil war was between internal tribes uh, of the northerners, southerners and the mountainous people. And the Russians in all this, who had suddenly become a minority overnight in the newly independent countries, were suffering from a great deal because of de-Sovietization, de-Russification of what Scott Radnitz calls um, 
ethnic discomfort. And um, so Andre Wallace uh, has written what has been called a Raman Punktir. That means a novel whose dots can be connected because there are short stories. And when you read all the short stories together, you get uh, uh, an overall picture, a macro picture of this made up city called Huramabad. Huramabad is like Narayan's Malbadi or uh, Thomas Hardy's Wessex. It's, it's non-existent. It means city of joy. So I will just focus on one story once again about dehoming, not homelessness, but dehoming. Okay, I'll, I'll end with this. I just wanted to read. Um, okay, I'll skip the Huramabad and I'll come to uh, Belarusia. Belarusia is where um, you have the great um, Nobel laureate who's uh, won the Nobel Prize in 2015, secondhand time. She uses testimonial literature. She creates, uh, she does these massive number of interviews and brings out the human voice that look at the big tragedies, whether of the fall of the Soviet Union, Chernobyl, Afghan war, so on and so forth. And lastly, I just want to mention Ukraine, since Ukraine is on all our minds. Um, Ukraine has been in the has been under several empires, Ottoman, Poland, um, and so on, Habsburg, the Russian Tsarist Empire, and under Soviet Union. And so the question of land, which uh, Professor Trivedi read out, uh, the father and founder of Ukrainian literature, Taras Shevchenko, uh, Professor Trivedi read out his lines in the morning, I won't do it again. But war has emerged as a very major theme. And I will just read out one para and wind up. Uh, this is by Boris Kersonsky, who was a Samit Izdat writer, that is the self-published writer, underground writer during Soviet times. And now he's publishing, and he actually was writing in Russian, publishing in Russia, but as a protest against this conflict situation, which has extended for more than a decade now between Russia and Ukraine, um, he has started writing in Ukrainian. So uh, this is called Explosions Are the New Normal. Explosions are the new normal, you grow used to them. Stop noticing that you, with your ordinary ways, are a goner. A trigger man and a sapper wander around the park, whispering like a couple, I wish I could eavesdrop. A trigger man and a sapper wander around like a couple, as the angel of destruction observes them tenderly from the crowd. We are captive birds, dear brother. That's it. That's all black sun of melancholy shines like a sharp nail hole. So uh, war emerges as a major theme in all these. Um, yeah, well, and there is, of course, uh, the great Babi Yar, which is uh, the place where during the Holocaust, Jews were uh, massacred by uh, Hitler's army. And there are wonderful poems on that, too. So I'm sorry that we've run out of time. Thank you. Well. This is, it's a very huge landscape to cover and you tried wonderfully well. And I think it's given everybody a taste of all the different dimensions there are. I wish we had a couple of hours more for the session. Enjoyed this? Download the Mensa app and start your own live audio conversation.